Isn't that amazing? An amazing song. I mean, that's really what we're all after when we go home. You think about all the things that we go through right now, and that someday none of it's going to matter. The tears, the trials, the things we struggle with all the time, it will seem as nothing. And that's what the sentiment of that song is. And Terry, I appreciate you leading our, our minds in that. It really touches along some of the things we're going to be talking about this morning. And to the elders, I want you to know how much I appreciate the honor that you've given me to be able to stand up in this stewardship, to be able to, to speak God's word. You know, when Rick sent out a list and said, here are some of the times, which one do you want? There was one time that said 10 or the 11 a.m. service. And I'm like, no, I need boundaries. And so I opted for the 9 a.m. knowing that we are going to be locked here, and, and that's going to help us make sure we stay on pace when we study the lesson we're going to study about this morning. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you up front, I'm going to challenge you to think a little differently than maybe you've thought in, in the past in one of the things that we're going to be talking about. And while I'm not going to be dogmatic and say that the interpretation that we're going to be looking at is the way to look at it, I want to invite you to look at a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about to see if a different understanding than maybe we've studied this passage in, in the past has really uh, been there. Because what we're going to do is we're going to spend a lot of time, the bulk of our time, going through cultural references so that when we look at the subject we're going to talk about this morning, we can have in our minds the same thing that the Jewish people who heard this had in their minds. And sometimes having that understanding can help us look at different um, truths that we may overlook when we bring our 21st century perspective into something that was written 2,000 years ago. So what we're going to be talking about this morning is the, the story that Jesus told in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus. And we're not really going to spend a lot of time going through the details of the story. We'll hit on, a, uh, on, on some of the things, but I'm assuming that we all know the story of the rich man and Lazarus is found in Luke chapter 16. It's actually found in a collection of stories or parables that were taught in chapters 15 and 16, and this really is the culmination of a list of parables that, that, we, that we look at. And there are basically two different fundamental beliefs or views when people get to the rich man and Lazarus that they look at. So some people view this as a parable, and they look at this as being a parable in the same ways that all the other stories in this passage are parables. And then there are other people that look at this as being a real story. There was a real rich man who died, and there was a real man, a uh, poor man named Lazarus who died. And what Jesus is doing is he's recounting to teach a lesson a real event that happened. And some of the people that believe that this is a real story will use things like, well, this story doesn't really fit all the parameters of what Jesus usually teaches when he teaches a parable. In other words, there are some specific details in this story that you don't typically see in parables. For example, one of the characters has a name. And uh, you typically don't see that kind of detail or specificity in there. Now, I'm not here to say that one of these is right, one of these is wrong. Honestly, I think that either one of these could be a good way of looking at it. What I want to do is propose, is there even a third possibility? Again, without being dogmatic, without being 
to saying that the other two are wrong and this one's right. I just want to guide our thoughts today with maybe Jesus had something else in mind when he was teaching on this. And that is, could Jesus have been aiming this parable at one specific man? In his mind, did he have one specific person in mind who he was dropping hints throughout this story that the rich man fit one man. And the important thing that we want to remember as we look and look at this one possibility is did Jesus have one man in mind that he wanted to, he wanted us to automatically think of when he talked about the rich man? Is so what? Even if that's true, at the end, we're going to try to walk that off the page and say, even if he had meant the rich man for everyone who heard to have some specific person in mind, what lessons can we walk away from? Because that's really what the important thing was. He was still speaking to a multitude of people, and he was speaking to his disciples. So I'm going to tell you who I think it's possible that Jesus was putting in place of the rich man, or who he wanted the Jews at least to think of when they were thinking who this rich man was. And that was a high priest Caiaphas. And I think when we look at the details and we look at all the different things we're going to be going through, there are a lot of breadcrumbs that Jesus drops that in the minds of the people who are hearing him to walk away and say, well, of course, this man really sounds like Caiaphas, the high priest. But there are things in our 21st century mind that we would never be able to pick up on necessarily if that's what he was doing without going back and understanding some of the cultural context that the original people who heard this would have thought about. So why do I think this is a possibility? This is really going to be the outline of where we're going to go this morning. First of all, we're going to look at the context of Luke chapter 15 and 16. I think the context of that and how Jesus, he's, he's in the area of Berea when he's teaching at this time. There's a lot of things he do. This is really a focused part of that teaching. He goes on for another four weeks in Perea before he heads back to Judea. But the passages that Luke records for us give us context that are very interesting for us to look at, and we'll talk about that. But another thing is when we get into the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus drops some very interesting details in there, details that would go over our heads as Americans because we would have no frame of reference to understand what those, those um, references would mean. But with the Jews, by the time we're done with the next section, we would see that there's a good chance that when Jesus spoke of some of these details in the story of rich man and Lazarus, it would conjure up very specific images in the mind of the people who heard that. So we'll look at uh, that within the story. And as we've alluded to, and where we're going to spend a big poke of our time here in the next few minutes, is understanding the culture. Because there are some things they knew. They knew some things, for example, about Caiaphas that unless we studied history, we won't know about. And so when Jesus is speaking, these things would really come into his mind. They would come into the people's minds and his, as he dropped those details. Um, it possibly could be pointing out some things that we would just miss over. So let's talk about the culture and why it's important for us to uh, spend time on looking at the cultures. Again, we want to do this so we can read the scriptures through Jewish eyes. 
there are just some things that we, some details that will pass right over us if we don't understand that cultural message. On, let me give you an example. How many people, through our studies, understand the relationship that the Samaritans had with the Jews? Probably most of us. And why do we know that? It's not anything that when, when we pick up the Bible we would necessarily read and, and understand their relationship. We know it culturally because we study the history. We understand the history of how the Jews and the Samaritans had a terrible relationship with each other. There was a lot of prejudice among those two people to the point where history tells us Samaria landed right in the center of Israel and the Jews would go out of their way and they would walk around uh, Samaria so they wouldn't have to step foot in that, in that place. And we know that there's that hatred, that, that uh, prejudice that exists. Well, we know that because history tells us that. Um, and we're going to look at a piece in history that tells us that. And what that does is it helps us to understand some of the things that we read. And it gives us a different context when we read it. So when we talk about Samaria, we talk about Samaritans, what are a couple events that, that we uh, understand in the Bible, or that we read about in the Bible, where Jesus interacts with Samaria? Well, at the beginning of his ministry, where does he go? He takes his disciples and goes right into Samaria, and he talks about the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, reading that from a 20th century uh, cultural that we would have, that wouldn't seem like a big deal. But understanding the culture and the history, we understand that was a real big deal. Jesus was upending the whole norms of Jewish society when he stepped into Samaria. Not only did he step into Samaria, but he first started, he revealed who he was first to a Samaritan woman. And not just any Samaritan woman, but he chose someone that had a very questionable uh, relationship um, with her uh, husbands, five husbands, as Jesus says. So Jesus, what he does is he does things that is totally unexpected. Now, can you imagine what went through the, the minds of the disciples when he first led this group? First thing they do is they go into Samaria. It had to have an effect on them. It had to have an effect. What are we doing here? And we know that because you remember later on when Luke tells us that towards the end of his ministry, where he's going to go to Jerusalem to die, he sends the disciples into Samaria to make room for him, to, to make preparations for him to stay there. What, remember what the Samaritans' reaction was to him? They rejected him. No, you're not going to stay here. When they, when they heard that Jesus was uh, set his face to go up to Jerusalem, they rejected him. Now, James and John, two of his disciples, what, was his react, what were their reactions to the Samaritans? Lord, should we call down fire from heaven? to burn them up because of what they said. You can see, if you understand the context, you can see where that hatred came from. There are a lot of people that rejected Jesus. The Jewish leaders, scribes, Pharisees, the high priest. Is there one time when James and John said to Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to rain down on these Jews? You can see that relationship. And our culture, a study of their culture under, uh, helps us to understand where this comes from. And so Jesus obviously does what he does. He upends everything. He looks at him and says, boys, I don't want you to talk like this ever again. 
And so my point in going through this with the Samaritans is there are some things that we understand and there are some lessons that we understand when we go through the study of the cultures and we try to read things through the eyes of Jews as they would understand those. Things that we would totally miss if we didn't understand the relationship that the Jews and the, and the Samaritans have. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend a few moments looking at the family of Annas. Who's Annas? Remember in the scriptures when Jesus was crucified or when, or when he went through the trials, he was brought to two people, right? He was brought to Annas, who was called the high priest, and he was brought to Caiaphas, and he stood before both of them. Well, the Jews understood who Annas was, and there are some details about Annas that they would know. And so those are things that we may not understand. And so let's talk about the cultural evidence of Annas and how that might put some ideas into the Jews' minds when, they, when Jesus was teaching on the rich man and Lazarus. So let's talk about the family of Annas. Annas was high priest. We know this for a fact. He was high priest between 6 and 15 A.D. Now, some of the, the, the research I looked at said he may have been around 25, 26 years old when he became high priest. But we know this is when he, he did. We'll talk in just a moment why he's no longer high priest at, age 15, uh, at 15 A.D. But he served as high priest. Now, that brings us an interesting light of one of the scriptures that maybe we read and we never do associate to Annas. Jesus was somewhere around 12 years old when, Jesus, when Annas first became high priest. What do we know about Jesus when he was 12? It probably, uh, most scholars say Jesus was born now between 6, uh, 6 B.C. and 4 B.C. That would put Jesus visiting the temple somewhere between the first and, first and third year that Annas became a high priest. So he was a new high priest. He was new in this position. And the scriptures tells us that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and of his answers. And so when you start, when you know the history of that, you realize that Annas being a new high priest probably had a, his first encounter with the Messiah at age 12. And for all accounts, it looks like it was a pretty positive meeting with him on it. And so other things that we know about Annas is that he had five sons that eventually served as high priest. And he had a daughter, and his daughter married someone that he was also able to to put into the position of high priest. Any, any guesses on what this guy's name was? Well, it's Caiaphas. Caiaphas was married to Annas's daughter. And so for the next few decades, Annas was able to arrange it to where his family kept power in Jerusalem with the Romans by putting his son's into the position of high priest, all the way to the very end when the temple was destroyed, and it was his grandson who was high priest. So he kept it in the family business. And that goes back, well, why did the, why did the Romans depose him in 15 AD? From everything we can study, it had nothing to do with they were mad at him or he did something to upset him. It's just the, the Romans were very skittish about giving any 
leader within a conquered territory too much power. And so they deposed him because they did not want that power to be concentrated, but they had a good enough relationship where they told Annas, you can have influence on who you want here. And they allowed him to, to put uh, his family in this role of high priest, and he kept it within the family. And what we start seeing is Annas was the power behind this patriarchal family that started focusing on not just being the high priest of, of God's people, but uh, building the wealth. Now we get this from Josephus. Josephus, who is a historian in his antiquity, says this about, about Annas. He says, now the report goes that the elder Annas proved to be a fortunate man, for he had five sons who had all performed the office of high priest of, to God. And he himself enjoyed that dignity for a long time formerly, which had never happened to any other high priest. So this is part of the history. Well, we know this. And he was rich. To say he was filthy rich is not an overstatement. Because Annas, when he was building this power, um, did a lot of things to, to consolidate his power and to consolidate money. So how did he make his, his wealth? Well, he got a salary. All high priests got a salary. Um, when you brought in money and you wanted to give or you needed to, to use money to buy something in the temple, you couldn't use Gentile money because that was unclean, so you had to change it in. You had to exchange it for money that you could use. And he and his people got real good at this, and the family of Annas received a 12.5% commission off of all the money that was exchanged. Well, not only that, but if you brought in your animal to be sacrificed, it had to be ceremonial clean, and guess what? Well, for a fee, they would declare it clean. Or if it wasn't clean, or if you didn't bring an animal, you could go get this. You could go to a place called the Bazaars of the Son of Sons of Annas, and you could buy from them animals that were ceremonially clean. So they have taken their position, this holy position that God had given them, and they have, they have parlayed it into a cash cow money-making machine. Is there any wonder when God came down to earth and saw what they were doing in the temple, made him so incensed that he turned over the money changers and cleansed the temple? But they had lost track of what their duty was. They had lost track of what their purpose was, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. Some scholars say that they brought in the equivalent to today's life of about $20 million a year, making them one of the wealthiest families that existed in this part of the world at this time. That's the cultural reference. Now, the Jews, they knew this, but they didn't see it as bad, right? They saw that, well, if God's blessing them, then God's showing their favor on these people. We need to be more like these people because obviously God's blessing them for what they did. But this is the context that the people who heard the story of the rich man and Lazarus would know and without diving into some of this study, we would never know. Um, we would never be able to understand. So, just to nail that point home, Josephus says about Annas, he was a great order up of money. 
So this is not anything that um, the Jews would not know. It was commonly known. So tuck all those things away. Those are going to be coming back here to us in a moment. The other reason that makes me believe that Jesus may have in mind Caiaphas as being the rich man is the context of Luke chapter 15 and 16. So what do we mean? In both chapters 15 and both chapter 16, Jesus, Luke tells us Jesus was speaking to the spiritual leaders at that time specifically. So the parables he's talking about, he's aiming them to a specific group of people. Though at the beginning of 16, he also is saying he's teaching at the same time to his disciples as well. But look at what he says. In Luke 15, it says, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, This man um, receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And this is where we start getting into the parable of the lost coins. We talk, we, we talk about their role as shepherds. They also say in the next chapter, now they go through and Jesus tells them some parables about stewardship. They didn't like what they heard. They were rich. And they knew that Jesus was teaching against them. The Pharisees, in verse uh, 15, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. And notice, Luke tells us, and he spoke to them. And so the point we're talking about is when we look at Luke chapter 15 and 16, and at the end of 16, Luke makes it very clear that he's speaking to these religious leaders when he's talking about these things. And then you can look at the division here in chapter 15. Jesus, now who was Jesus? The Messiah. He was God who came down to earth. The priest were supposed to be mediators between him and the people. And he's come down to visit and talk to them about their role. And they weren't doing a good job. They didn't believe that he was God. So they wouldn't think of it like that. But we know that's exactly what happened. This is God coming down to the people who should have been mediating between him and people. And so he tells these verse uh, three parables in chapter 15 about how they weren't being the shepherds that he wanted them to be, that they should have been. That instead of spending time looking and going after the lost sheep and spending time showing their love for them, they had lost their way and they began to look at ways that they could build up power and money for themselves. Their heart was in the wrong place. And then when we look over in chapter 16, he goes through a list of, of parables and stories talking about their stewardship. And this is where they get angry, because they were rich. And he was talking about people who were rich, but they were getting rich for their own selves, and they were failing miserably at their stewardship. Even the story on the divorce and and remarriage, the one verse he fits there, fits perfectly well in this context, because the religious leaders were split, and some of them were leading people away from what God's message was. And he said, guys, you're not being the shepherds. You're not teaching the people the right way, and he weighs in on that. And then we get to our passage in Luke 16. Like I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time uh, going over that, uh, going over all the details. But knowing everything that we did, I want to point out some details that Jesus mentioned in Luke 16. And having heard everything we talked about, what does it tell us? First of all, Jesus drops in a piece of detail about their clothing that they wear. 
Now, to most of us, that may go over our head, or we may look at it through our 21st century eyes, and we think, wow, rich people, you know, we know that they spend a lot of money on clothes, don't they? Some people spend as much money on their clothes as we would spend on a car. And they would spend hundreds of thousand dollars, if they're really rich, on their jewelry. So we would look at this, and we would look at it like this. But Jesus, look at what he says. And there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who fared sumptuously every day. How would the Jews hear this? I think Jesus is very, very, perhaps, purposeful when he mentions the clothing that he has. This isn't just any flashy clothing that they had. These people were clothed in purple and fine linen. So what would that trigger in the minds of a Jew? Because we do the same type of thing. How many people here have a favorite sport team that they follow? Your sport team has colors, right? And you identify them with them. If all of us were to go to the next Olympics and we were to sit in the stadium and we were to see the parade of nations march by and somebody were to lean over to us and said, look, here comes the red, white, and blue. What would, con- what would come up to our minds? Well, we'd say, well, here come the American soldiers. And the Jews were the same one. Purple and fine linen would have conjured up a very specific thing. Well, what does Moses say? Um, in Exodus 25, listen to what Moses says about the clothing of the, the priest. And they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. And they shall make them ephods of gold, and blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and of the twined linen skillfully worked. And then over in chapter 39, specifically speaking to the high priest, And from the blue and the purple and scarlet yarns, they made finely woven garments for uh, ministering to the holy place. And they made holy garments for Aaron, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And they made the ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. My point is that when Jesus drops this detail in, to me it seems very likely that they would have thought, oh, these rich people are, are the priests because of the clothing that he's wearing. That's what would come to their mind. And and of course, the priests are blessed by God, so they would be rich. Um, And so that's one of the first things that we looked at. Next thing, if you remember in the story, remember when he wants Lazarus to come and dip his finger in water because he's tormented in the flame, and Abraham says, no, there's a gulf. And he says this. He says to him, I have five brothers, remember? And he said to them, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment. Why did Jesus drop this detail in this story? Perhaps. So the Jews are thinking, oh, he's talking about the priest, right? Purple and fine linen, rich people. Now he starts narrowing in. Could this detail be the current, aimed at the current high priest Caiaphas, because we know Annas had five sons, and he had five brothers. So is this something where Jesus is trying, perhaps, to shoot a warning shot across the bow of the current high priest, saying, guys, you guys are going off course. You need to refocus your efforts on being the priest that I have ordained you to be. So I have five brothers. Remember what Abraham's response is? They have Moses and the prophets. Another clue on who this could be talking about. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Why would Jesus say this? Of any, of everyone in Israel, who should be the most familiar 
with Moses and the prophets? Who should be the one who saw the Messiah coming? Who should have been one if they hadn't been so preoccupied on focusing on building wealth and building power? Who should have been the one that knew what the, uh, Moses and the prophets said? It should have been the high priest. It should have been the priest. These people had everything they needed to know. Jesus nails his home after the resurrection when he meets to the people, uh, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they were sad because who he was. And he spent that whole time, it says, teaching them from Moses and the prophets how the Christ might, uh, must come and suffer and be raised. They had everything they know, and of all the people, it should have been the high priest who should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, he was the promised Messiah, and they should have been the ones, he should have been the one proclaiming it to the rest of the people, but instead, his focus was in the wrong place. Could this be a warning shot? that Jesus is firing over the bow of his high priest. And he said to them, Father Abraham, but no, uh, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will believe. And he said to them, Abraham, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced that someone rise from the dead. He says, if someone, if, 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 if someone rises from the dead, they would believe. I used to think, and I think this is still true, but the thrust of this was, hey, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And what he's saying is, when I rise from the dead, you still won't believe. And I think that's true. But in saying this, because Jesus had something else in mind. We'll talk about that in just a second. But there's one more detail we haven't spent a lot of time talking about in this. Jesus gives a name to the person the rich man, or the, the poor man. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. And we ask, what was the purpose of him dropping this detail? Ricky, you're pretty good when there's something you want to say that's important, and you say, put a peg in this, because we're going to come back. Could Jesus be doing the same thing? by dropping the name Lazarus and saying, put a peg here because this name's going to be important. And then the chronology of events. Guess what the next thing that happened? After he spends his time in, in Perea teaching all these things, where's the next place he goes? You probably can't read that. It's a little small, but let me tell you what it says. He was in Perea, and the next thing he goes is he goes back towards Jerusalem, specifically Bethany. And the next event, about four weeks later, is he raises a man named Lazarus, from the dead. Again, we won't go into a lot of detail. It's really not the purpose of this lesson, but we know the story. A lot of people sad, a lot of people upset, because Lazarus dies. Jesus comes in, they remove, they roll away the stone, and he glorifies himself by saying, Lazarus comes forth, and everyone is thrilled. Everyone's happy. Their sadness is turned into joy. Well, not everyone. Passage says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and they told him what Jesus had done. And some of the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered uh, the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let them go on, listen to where their focus is, listen to where their heart is. If we let them go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. 
I think Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, though a man named Lazarus would rise from the dead, they still wouldn't believe. But you know what? There's someone else in this group. You want to hazard a guess who else is here? I'll give you a hint. He was a rich man, clothed in purple and fine linen, who had five brothers, who should have known Moses and the prophets better than anyone else. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that this is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Remember when we said put a pig in there? Jesus said in the story, even if a man named Lazarus will come back from the dead, you won't believe. And now a man named Lazarus came from the dead. And just like Jesus said in the story in Luke 16, they still didn't believe. So what? How do we walk this off the page, as Jordan says? Here are some takeaways that I think are important for us, if indeed, and I stress that, if indeed Jesus intended the story of the rich man and Lazarus where Caiaphas is the rich man. We need to understand our associations are not going to be the things that save us. Caiaphas was around the right people, the best people. Everyone thought that he was who he, uh, he was with the people that God approved. And Jesus was telling him no. And the same thing with us today. We can have the right association, but that's not going to save us. Only Jesus will save us. And we need to make sure that we understand what's in, written in the, in, in the Word. And our membership won't save us. Being part of the right church or being a member of the right church alone is not what's going to save us. Listen, Caiaphas was a high priest. Caiaphas was a member of the synagogue. Caiaphas uh, was in all of the right memberships. He was part of the council. That alone was not enough to save them. And sometimes we can get our focus out of whack and we can think the membership alone in the right place is enough to save us. We need to be careful where we put our heart because we can be around the right people. We can be members of the right um, have our membership in the right place, but if our heart is not in the right place, we could fall victim the same way that Caiaphas did. And so let's not be blind to the truth that we have. They had Moses and the prophets. They had everything they need to know that Jesus was the Messiah, but their heart was focused in the right, wrong area. We have everything we need to know who Jesus is, to know what he can do for us. And we need to make sure that we aren't so blind to what we already have that we miss the simple message that was given to us. So the last thing I want to do is, as a word of encouragement, is this. Our heart will be where our treasure is. So let's make sure our treasure is in, or our heart is in the right place. And I Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.